Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our generous sponsors, BetterHelp and Arcat.com. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Mike McDermott, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, This is a long time coming. This is one that I've been waiting for for a long time. Mike is the co-founder of FreshBooks. And anybody who's listening to this podcast knows FreshBooks, knows what FreshBooks is. A longtime supporter of this podcast, of our community of small firm business owners. One of our very first sponsors back in the, in the day when I first started sponsorships, FreshBooks said yes right away. And it's been sponsoring our show on and off for many, many years. And so, first of all, Mike, thank you for that. I appreciate your support. Mark, it's such a privilege. One of the super fun things for me over the years has been able to be a first check for a number of businesses and efforts, and I'm delighted we've been able to support you in some way, and thank you for having us. Yeah, well, thank you. And let me just share a little bit more detail about you. Co-founder of FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the number one software in the cloud designed exclusively for us, freelancers and growing service-based business owners. Built in 2003 after he accidentally saved over an invoice. I think many of us could probably relate to that. Mike spent three and a half years growing fresh books from his parents' basement. That probably also sounds pretty familiar to architects. <laughs> Since then, over 30 million people have used fresh books to save 
uh, to save time billing and collects billions of dollars. You know fresh books. I want to hear the story of Mike McDermott, how this got all started. And I want to know more about you. So go even further back than that, Mike. I want to know your origin story. When did you discover your passion for what you do and maybe even who or what inspired you to get started? Well, thank you, Mark. Wow. Okay. So it's not that exciting a tale. I'm not that exciting a guy, but I do love serving others and, and business is a great way to go ahead and do that. And so my beginnings as an entrepreneur, there are a couple little telling signs. Yeah, probably the most concrete example is when I was, I'm a Canadian and about the age of, uh, I don't know, 10 or 11, I wanted a new hockey helmet. My parents said, that's ridiculous. You can use your brothers. It's you know <laughs> almost 20 years old, but that's fine. And I said, no, no, no. And it was my birthday. And so I went around and ended up collecting and said, don't buy me a present. Please give me $5. And I went around to the people who are coming to my party and collected money. I didn't have enough. And my best friend's dad was like, this is hilarious. You've raised like $45. It's 60. I'll cover the rest. You know, we're going to do this. We'll get you that helmet. So that was like fundraising and kind of solving a problem that I had. I love that. Yeah. In a way, like didn't occur to me that was wrong. It just felt perfectly natural. Like, don't give me a gift. I don't want whatever you're going to get me for $5. Just contribute to this. So that was, that was one example. But I think a lot of entrepreneurs and or people wired like myself are almost at times in their life, I feel like my self-awareness has grown over the years and continues to grow, but I really didn't understand my bias to being an entrepreneur. And my mom like bought me a book in grade 12, put it in my stocking on the holidays. And it was all about like basically, you know, entrepreneurship for dummies. And I was like, why are you giving me this? You know, <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's high school. I guess she had me sort of pegged. I had to go through a bit of a journey, as many do in my 20s, before I kind of figured out, you know, found my way to, I think, what is clearly at this stage a calling for me. What did your mom and dad do? My dad, you know, first studied engineering and then actually ended up going into law. And so he ended up being a corporate lawyer. Mm -hmm. And then my mom, she was a nurse by training and did that for a little bit. And then she went and really, she was, you know, we've, I'm not the fourth of four kids. And she ended up really being a stay at home mom who was very busy. And so she got very involved in the community, helping out with a variety of things and ultimately started incubating these little initiatives. She carved out a place in the world. And this is like the 1980s when she did this. She became like, a leading stress management consultant, funnily enough. And she focused on wow. kids and school. And she, you know, actually went with her when I was in like grade two or three and into classrooms with younger kids and like inner city schools that didn't have all the resources others did and kind of started teaching them, you know, about stress, kind of what it looks like and feels like, because sometimes people can't name it and like breathing techniques and imagery techniques to help them, yeah. you know, at sort of get to know themselves, maybe feel a little more in control of their emotions if they're experiencing some some more challenging times. So she did that and, and actually a few other things like helping folks who had immigrated to Canada. I live in Toronto and she got all these corporations to basically say, okay, well, she got a whole bunch of things. Like it's hard to get a job if you can't dress for it. So she was like, mm-hmm. she got suits donated from people who didn't need them and dresses and she had a resume writing thing and she signed up all these corporations who said, if they come through this little program you have, we'll at least give them an interview. And so she helped a lot of people with that. It was a, actually a government sponsored thing here 
that got built up. And so the point is she kind of started and developed these various programs with other people in mind. And I guess that's not too dissimilar to the kinds of things I did. If you mix that with my dad was always, you know, there's lawyers who sort of, you know, make problems and there's lawyers who solve problems. And my dad was always on the problem solving side. So I I think I have a bit of a, exactly a bit of both with how I've spent my last 20 plus years. Yeah. I could see how that influence from both sides could end up being an entrepreneur for sure. Did you have those tendencies other than the collection for the helmet? Did you have sort of entrepreneurial, (laughs) you know, tendencies early on? How did your mom know that she should pop that book in your stocking? I honestly, you'd have to ask her. I don't know. I remember in like grade three or four, I started washing cars in the neighborhood. The thing is, I didn't really stick with it. You know, I did a lemonade stand once or twice, but mostly with friends. That wasn't serious. So I don't know how she got there on her own. I did have a like the only academic standout thing that I did was actually economics in my final year of high school. And I kind of won the top mark for that. And that was the only ever thing I ever won the (laughs) top mark for. But I like to think that wasn't the thing. So I don't know. I mean, that's what moms do. They just kind of know sometimes, right? They take these little bits of data and, you know, look inside themselves and, and figure it out. So she was a good five years ahead of me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And she clearly, from your story, she amazing woman from it sounds like, and clearly entrepreneurial herself, not from the business side, but sort of the service side, right? So to see those problems come up with solutions and then not only provide the solution, but build an organization around that solution is very entrepreneurial. I wholeheartedly agree. I think what she was doing was being an entrepreneur and just, you know, wasn't too concerned with like just doing it in another forum that, right. you know, had the same effect of, I think, any great entrepreneur, which is being valuable to some constituent group. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So what were you doing before you saved over the invoice? What were you doing between high school and the launch of FreshBooks? Yeah. So my story is I ended up going to business school. That seemed like an obvious thing to do. I actually had set out to be a teacher and missed the date to actually apply. They were earlier than all the other programs. I had no idea. So I was like, oh, I guess I'm not going to be a teacher. I ended up applying for business school. And in my fourth year, I ended up leaving the business school program and starting a couple businesses. I had become very passionate about the sport of ultimate Frisbee. Mm-hmm. And it's still pretty grassroots, but it is, you know, there's a professional league now, which right. is something we always dreamed of. And it's more developed and very much entrenched in, for example, the US college system. Anyway, so I got very into that and I started a league and I also started to run a tournament, different locations and all this stuff. But those became my first real, I did them as well as finishing off my undergrad degree. And I liked them, right? I had to conceive of an event, you know, sort of let people know about it, describe it, recruit them to show up and do it. The league was a little more straightforward and less ambitious. But, you know, through those things, I ended up, I met a caterer for my event because I had 600 people to send on me that I had to feed and house and had television crews and all the stuff at the tournament. I met a caterer there and he needed a website. I built one for him. That's when I started invoicing people. And that led to me one day saving over an invoice, which led to FreshBooks. So there's this whole, mm-hmm. when you look back, you know, I can start to connect the dots, but right. I wouldn't say it was all obvious at the beginning. And I think it's fair to say my parents were like, 
pretty uncertain what I'd get up to for a number of years there. I'm very pleased with how it all worked out, but uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, don't write yourself off yet if you're out there and it's not clear. I think anyway, certainly anybody sub 28, I think a lot of people don't know, you know, what they're going to get up to at that stage. So yeah. you're not alone. Just no one will tell you that. That's why I love the origin story to understand where people came from, sort of looking back and connecting the dots and seeing how each one of those steps led you to where you are today. Right? It's not an accident that you are where you are today. Things had to happen in certain ways in order for that to all end up where you are now. So you were running some businesses, running a league, doing some invoicing, made a mistake. How did you go from sort of seeing that problem, right? You understand that there's a problem with the invoicing process to, okay, there's a business here. I mean, was there sort of a, a moment in time where you're like, oh, I should pursue this? So just to put a little more color in it, it'll help answer that question. Yeah. The caterer started building. I ended up, I had to, for the, to promote the event, I had to teach myself how to build websites. Should explain that. And then my caterer needed one. Got it. So I started building websites for other people. And then I went on this whole journey of I'm building websites. There's no point in building them unless people show up. So I got interested in internet marketing. And then the third iteration of all that was, what's the point of having people show up if they don't do what you want? So I started carving out this thing called conversion consulting, which is kind of a big thing in at least technology and and marketing today. But I was like 15 sort of years ahead of my time, probably. Anyways, and then I saved over an invoice when I was doing this consulting work. And I said, hey, there's got to be a better way. Now, I actually decided to build the first version of FreshBooks myself because I had been learning about programming. I just thought my clients would like to see it and it would evidence to them, hey, we could do more for you than what we're doing. So here's an example. But then pretty quickly, it really caught my attention. I kind of was like, there was almost a mania there for me for about a year. Me and my, ended up being my my co-founder, just working away in our own spare time, trying to birth whatever this thing was going to be. And, and back then, you know, there's a lot of technology businesses that are, you know, it feels there's an app for this and an app for that. Well, this was all before this. We were cloud before right. cloud. This is very early. Yeah, very early to be doing this kind of thing. And so it was pretty, pretty pioneering. And I love that. I think as I reflect more and more my career, what I like doing, I'm living at this other end of the spectrum, doing a lot of board work for some companies I founded now. But I love the periods of time when the outcomes are unknown, right? Once you get to a certain scale, it's kind of like, how do you mix the Lego blocks around? There's not nearly as much sort of creativity and uncertainty, but those beginning phases and into sort of a growth phase of developing a company, those first few clients, let's just say, if you're an agency back when I was a firm, how am I going to get these? What's my specialty? How do I get enough of a practice developed? And then once it's kind of rinse and repeat and we know this, I'm a little less interested at all. I can still do it. I've learned to do that over the years. But that so, so effectively built the thing and realized other people would like it. And my clients responded well when they got the invoice that way and said, huh, maybe there's something here. And then it just became this big problem of, well, like, how do we build a business like this? How do we build product? I didn't know anything about product management, product development. I knew a little bit about internet marketing, but nothing about building a brand or building a company or really hiring people in these disciplines. Certainly nothing about capital raising or all that kind of stuff. So I just loved all those problems that were kind of on the horizon that I sort of knew nothing about and 
really ended up just going and bring our first principles approach to and living really on the edge of my chair with my hair on fire for a couple of decades until I got to some level of competence. Yeah. What was the role of your co-founder? He was, he is, and he's still a great, great friend. So his name is Joe. He was a postdoc in computer science. And so he ended up writing the back-end software and I started to do the front-end in design. Well, that's even a stretch, right? Because you know you might be writing algorithms with a million variables, but writing software is actually a different exercise than that. So we were both learning, mm-hmm. but we, we loved it. Yeah. So you did the front-end, the design, the business side of it, and he sort of built the back-end of FreshBooks into the early platform of what it became. That's right. And he brought us our third co-founder as well, a gentleman named Levi, who's kind of the manager. So often entrepreneurs will ask, you know, hey, what's one book? And I'd say, oh, I'd probably start with the E-Myth, yeah. at least to carve up and understand the roles and kind of which player you are in, you know, the entrepreneur, the manager, right. and the technician. Like, where do you bias towards? What is it you love? And, you know, sort of compliment yourself accordingly. We just lucked out with kind of having that triad from the outset. Yeah, The E-Myth is a book we've recommended and talked about a lot here. We actually have had Michael Gerber, not on the show, but on another show that we do. That was fun. (laughs) Interesting guy. What I'd love to understand is, you know, you have these three roles, right? You bring your three co-founders together, but you sort of listed a whole bunch of other things that you needed to learn in order to start this business and didn't know. How did you do that? How did you sort of fill in those gaps and learn the things that you needed to learn And how did the funding for that work? Was it just revenue that was coming through that initial platform? So what we have become is a product development company, but I had my consulting agency. Mm, Okay. So that supported me and like two of our employees. Each of the founders, I think Joe and I put in like $10,000 each, which was like a lot of money. Yeah. Levi left a consulting job and came and put in some money and kind of made him more of a partner through all that. And then my mom, we talked about her, she actually co-signed on a line of credit for us. So we had this small capital base of, you know, like my consulting dollars plus this, let's call it like less than a hundred grand. And then we had some revenue. And so we just really eked it out, moved into my parents' basement, saved a lot of money. I think, you know, the answer to solve, like really your question of how did you solve all these problems? It wasn't really with the money. I find personally in business, there's very few problems that are actually solved with money. They're solved with people, time, knowledge, expertise. The easy answer is, oh, it's money. You know, it's like 99 problems out of 100 are not money. (laughs) It's the easy answer. I mean, as an entrepreneur, you're always like, oh, if I could just raise this money, all my problems will be good, you know, whatever. Not true, right? I would sort of dispel that talk track in the brain. And so my solution was I like to collect advisors and I didn't know this at the start, but I would go out. And so one of the first was my best friend's dad was, he'd actually gone to HBS for an executive management program, was an executive inside a couple very different industries, but he was a good generalist business person. So I spent time with him, like, I have no idea how to market a product or whatever. And he had some some opinions there that were helpful. And over time, basically, through my own efforts, experimentation, thankfully, the internet and sort of finding community of other people who are building things, going to the odd event, and then mixed with progressively more specific experts and advisors that I collected along the way that helped me with other problems. That was kind of it. But I did spend a good chunk of time 
trying to network and meet people in related spaces. And that was one part inspiration in those early days, but also just that access to knowledge. And we were pioneering in a lot of ways. So we were figuring it out yeah. together with a handful of companies. And yeah, you know, some of our peers that are, you go look them up on NASDAQ or NYSE now, just huge successes, which is just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So you basically bootstrapped it up front you know, built this company, built the platform, started to gain some momentum and continued to grow. And it became what it is today through many, many different steps. What I'd love to do is sort of fast forward to recently, right? Recently, you're no longer the CEO. You're still chairman, still involved, still an executive. So what was the motivation to step away from the company at this point to pursue the next step? Yeah. So just to give people a snapshot, yeah. FreshBooks, you know, so we're in February, 2023. Uh, we're not February. What are we? Uh, September, 2023. September. <laughs> and, you know, the company is sort of north of 700 people with offices in six countries. You know, we were sort of one of these sort of unicorns in the year, you know, kind of leading up in all the COVID stuff and, you know, a pretty successful going enterprise. My experience is most founders transition to not being the CEO earlier in the journey than I did. I ended up going, and I think for my part, I kind of wish, I think the 300 person mark would have been a good place to really bring somebody in to do more running of the company. I didn't do that. I went to about 500. And I think that last, you know, those last couple legs or whatever, I just, I became, you know, like operating the company every day. Some people, it gives them energy. It's a tiring job. I don't think people understand how tiring yeah. that can really be. Like it's, you know, leading and pushing and moving. And I love that. But I think it was just for me, there's one thing to have the energy. It's another thing to kind of be getting enough back. And I think I failed to, and we can talk about this, just keep a, a good enough balance of just operating the thing and kind of being in the business versus doing the things that always recharge my batteries, you know, getting out there. And, you know, meeting often peers and learning about new problem spaces. And, you know, I had a good number of opportunities I wanted to chase. And some of it was just, you know, frankly, 20 years, right? Like, it's like, right. I knew a lot of this stuff. It wasn't changing enough. And there wasn't enough novelty, probably, for me in the role. And so I was kind of ready to say, okay, let's see. And I had somebody on hand who had been with me for two years and a role of being kind of like my partner, you know, who is capable of stepping into that role. So it afforded me a chance to do that and then do the executive chairman role or chair role and then ultimately transition. I'm actually just at FreshBooks now just doing the board work, which is great. And so that's good. And I have another company I founded where I play the same role as board chair that's a little younger, a little less developed. You know, having given all that as context, and I think it was sort of a confluence of the time and what have you. And it just seemed kind of natural. Well, let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Architects, listen up. Is something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Regardless if you have a clinical mental health issue like depression or anxiety, or if you're just a human who lives in this world and is going through a hard time, therapy can give you the tools to approach your life in a very different way. I know this community of small firm architects very well, and I see, I see many of you struggling. 
That's why I reached out to this episode's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a platform that makes finding a therapist easier because it's online, it's remote. And by filling out just a few questions, BetterHelp can match you with a professional therapist in as little as a few days. It's easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist. There's a link in the show notes. It's betterhelp.com architect. Just use that link, betterhelp.com architect. Clicking that link helps support this podcast, but it also gets you 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. So you can connect with a therapist and see if it helps you. If you need someone to talk to, consider online therapy with BetterHelp. Click the link in the show notes or visit betterhelp.com architect. That's betterhelp.com architect. Thank you to BetterHelp for supporting this podcast and for supporting our community of small firm architects. For over 30 years, RCAT has been providing AEC professionals with high quality and up-to-date building product information. Today, RCAT.com is much more than a product catalog with BIM, CAD, and specifications created in collaboration with manufacturers. Beyond that, RCAT.com also offers lead data, continuing education resources, newsletters featuring the latest projects and products, and don't forget, detailed podcasts. Artcat.com is truly the one-stop shop for everything architecture. Try it out. Go to Artcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. So what's your role now as chairman? How involved in the day-to-day and the direction of FreshBooks today? So I did a couple of years in this sort of transition role of executive chair. So you remember the executive team, your board chair, it's a good way to keep around some of the benefits of having a founder and former CEO around in terms of market knowledge, customers, you know, even shareholders and the rest of it. And in that role, the work I really enjoyed was incubating the future growth engines and opportunities. Yeah. And so now as really just board chair, it sort of depends on what's on the docket. You know, our board is very sophisticated and, and you know, we sort of classically meet four times a year, but there's there's a variety of other items, governance and otherwise that come up that you need to attend to. And I think one of the things I'm thinking about is, you know, am I going to, given my material holdings and interest in the organization, maybe I'll continue to go to some conferences. Like I can almost spend a lot of time inside of it. I'm What I'm actually doing right now is kind of enjoying a bit of a break. <laughs> yeah, It's been, I'm trying to do less, yeah. not more. Just given you know how many years it's been and the three kids under the age of eight, I'm trying to be a little more family oriented right now. Yeah, that's good. That's good for you for sure. So you've built FreshBooks. FreshBooks has become this massive tool, a tool that so many business owners use on a day to day basis to really impact and improve their business, which in effect improves their lives. It's a good business, right? Not only a good business financially, but a good business in terms of how it impacts our society. It's allowed so many businesses because it started so early. It was one of the first, if not the first cloud-based solution that was really out there as a choice for us. It allowed us, especially architects, to run businesses from home and online and build these, these new systems that now are 10, 20 years old. But it allowed us to shift the way we do business in the world. How do you sort of look back at that and sort of understand what you've built in terms of bigger picture? First of all, a privilege to even get to have a question like that posed. 
it is important to reflect and take notes at times. I believe that businesses are a source of positivity and good in the world. And if you think about the heart of an entrepreneur, if you ask me, it's you listen to customers, you find a problem in there that they would like help solving, and you help them solve it in the best way that you can. And so if you look at FreshBooks, I was the original customer, but pretty soon realized there were many others either like me or you know very similar who had this pain and problem. And then the job became listening to them to figure out, well, how do we tease on this string to really solve your whole problem? It's not as simple as you saved over an invoice. Maybe you have hundreds of invoices you're sending every month and it's just a tedious process, or maybe there's lots of error, like a whole slew of issues in there. And so I just love that process of trying to listen between the lines, not for what people want, but what they need and finding the patterns across a few conversations. I think, you know, as you go through life, you learn, you have strengths. I think there's an intuitiveness that that works well for me. So the point is, by virtue of building this product and people loving it, which we did through listening and spending time and kind of co-developing, putting something out there, getting feedback, we've helped people a great deal. On a micro level, we've had people write us and say, like, I was basically suicidal. I was, business was so disorganized. Yeah. Tax was coming. I was so lost and I found you and I can't believe it, right? We've had people cry, like, you know, you're making a difference. And then we also, the way we chose to do it, because it's one thing to build a piece of software, but one thing I've been incredibly proud of is our level of service. We like to practice you know, to me, our, our mission is to execute extraordinary experiences every day to help owners grow. And that 4E part of it was you know, at the beginning. We want to build a really usable, easy-to-use product that you know distinguishes us from other offerings because it's just intuitive, it's simple, it does what you need, not more, not less. But that's kind of what we aim for. But we wrap it with customer service. So one of my heroes in the business world, Isidore Sharp, who's the founder of the Four Seasons Canadian guy. I mean, that's a luxury hotel brand. And probably most of us haven't spent many nights there. But nonetheless, the culture of service at that company, to the extent you walk into a lobby one time and ask for directions or whatever it is, is truly remarkable. And that and perpetuating that, as well as building a great product, to me is both very interesting and a great gift to the folks who who get to use the offering. And then you have the people who work at the company, right? And you don't get that. I stole this from Isidore, which is, I think it was from him, but you have to treat people well if you want them to treat other people well. So always worked at building an environment that was, to the best of my ability, one that was supportive and where we took care of the team and the team takes care of the customers. That's kind of my philosophy. And then the customers take care of the business. That's how I think it sort of works. And we've always worked hard at that. And so I feel very proud about the culture and the service and just grateful for the opportunity that so many people have chosen to use us. But all of that, you know, is a gift for myself and like the team. Like, I think it's great to be a part of that thing. So, and, you know, there are a variety of ways that we have kind of helped and reshape things around us. We've pioneered a category. A lot of people have copied parts of what we do following in our footsteps, right? And that right. I think that's good. We're making other firms get better or showing them a way to do it. I'm proud of that. And so anyways, there's a whole long list of things. But I also, I'll put this one out there too. And I think we worked hard at this. I certainly did. The workplace is, I mean, actually, it's pretty strange now after COVID. I think this is less true, and I'm hoping it comes back to being true. But I feel like people work hard. They put a lot of hours in. 
you know, a lot of your community and, you know, we had a relatively younger company for, you know, the average ages, people are coming out of school and a lot of our roles, relatively younger, you have a profound effect on how people go through life and trying to be better humans. Yeah. Right. And I feel like, I feel like that is something that if, you know, a business is in there trying to help folks along those lines through one thing or another, that is a, as another sort of gift that's a big community of people and downstream partners and everything like that that yeah. anyway so i know sometimes people are dogmatic about you know business and evil and monopoly and profits and all the rest of it but i just i struggle with that i feel like there's a lot of good inside of a lot of the most profitable companies and i hate to think people like I think business is an act of creativity, right? You have a certain amount of time, you have a certain amount of resource, so there'll be dollars or whatever. And it's like, I've always thought of it being an entrepreneur is like a blank canvas, right? And you're painting something like, you know, entrepreneur just instead of using a canvas, they use their time, their materials in a different way and they build right. companies. So anyways, that notion of we've helped affect change in legislation in terms of freelancers, in like the state of New York, where you have to advocate so that people don't pay, you know, the courts used to just forget it. It's too expensive for people to pursue but changing some of the dynamics there. So if you don't pay your contractor or your freelancer, the default is a little more leaning towards them and they just walk away and the onus is on them to try and reclaim those funds. So there's just so many ways you can help once you, you start going down a path like this. And that to me is, it's all something to look back and be proud of. Yeah, for sure. And I've been aware of the the advanced customer support that FreshBooks has had because I've helped promote that as well through the podcast and have experienced it myself. It was a differentiator. And I think that that focus, and I didn't realize how focused you were on people inside the company as well as outside the company, right? That was a specific focus for you. I think now coming out of the pandemic, that human to human connection is imperative. Right. That that is a differentiator. I think that is something that is critical, even for tech companies that could potentially automate everything. I think having a human on one side speaking to a human on the other side is going to be something that differentiates the best companies in the world from the ones that just build these automated machines that do what they're supposed to do really well, but have no human to human connection. I subscribe to that outlook as well. I think it'll get more obvious over time. I think we're in an interim phase where yes. it seems kind of easy and obvious to do it one way, but I think you know there's a it's a good chance there'll be some significant shortcomings to that over time. Yeah. Speaking of the future, I want to just get your thoughts on the future before we wrap things up. Certainly AI is coming is here, right? But it's also coming to pretty much every platform on the internet and all the software solutions will have some sort of AI impact. How do you think that short-term, obviously long-term is sort of up for grabs to see where that goes, but short-term, how does AI impact tools like FreshBooks? So I think there's almost an infinite number of ways. And you know, my experience has been that People want to jump to these like, hey, predict all the things I need to do. Or, right. you know, yeah. And I actually am like, back it up. Let's keep it really simple and practical, right? So can you help reduce errors when people are entering numbers? Can you call out something that looks funny, you know, just so they save time? Maybe there's an error that shouldn't be there. Further enough, let's talk about service. You know, one thing we do, and I think this is how you start to understand AI better, like in my opinion, we're always going to want to have people and answer the phone. Yeah. But they're, you know, amongst 
most of us, like most of us don't want to have to talk to a company, right? That's already a bad sign. Yeah. And then if you do, like a lot of times it's like, can I get a fast, easy answer that's quick? And so, you know, a huge percentage of our like email customer service now, which we really pride ourselves on, is answered automatically and instantaneously with a speedy response via AI saying, hey, this is not a person. You're welcome to speak with one, but we think this is your answer. You know, just click here and we'll get you in touch with someone if it's not. But, you know, (laughs) 99 times out of 100, that's a better, faster answer that directly addresses their issue. And then, you know, when you're talking with the person, you can leave it for something that's more complicated or sophisticated. Or if you're just the kind of person who likes that medium better. But for a huge number of people, could I get an instant answer by email? Perfect, right? So I think, you know, like I like to think of it as like customers choose the channel, you know, and the timeline. So do I want to do email? Do I want to do phone? Do I want to do whatever? Like that should be your choice and we should be there in the best way we can be for you, inclusive of speaking with someone who's competent, if that's the path you want to be on. And we encourage it. We think that's the kind of thing that just is going to distinguish us every single time. But, you know, also lots of people who are reaching out, like really don't want to talk to a person. They just don't know how else to get it done. So, you know, that's a great application of AI. There are many. Right. I think that's a great solution for that as well. I think people really don't want to speak with humans until they want to speak to a human. <laughs> right. And when they want to speak to a human, they want a human to be able to be kind and friendly and knowledgeable and be able to answer their question quickly. But up to that point, yeah, just if I, there's a quick way to answer my question some other way. That's where I want to go. Before we wrap things up, and I appreciate your time, Mike, I know you're very busy. Could you give us a thought on? You know, we're talking to thousands of small firm architect business owners. They're all working to build better businesses. What would you say is the one thing that the small firm architect should do today to build a better business for tomorrow? So I think the the first thing is to actually maybe go back to something like Emeth and understand which kind of architect are you? Mm-hmm. Are you someone who really wants to be off, you know, with your drafting table 21 hours a day and creating? Are you someone who has come up through architecture and are now interested in being a partner at a firm and kind of managing it? And, you know, so just, you know, first of all, figure out which one of those things you are. And I think that's actually, you know, maybe I could stop there. I think that for a lot of people is actually a really, really good way to begin because I think once you know that, the answers start to unfold. I think if you look at me, funny, I don't really look back at this even with regret. I, you know, no wrong answers. But I think it's like, hey, if you really love drafting, but you find yourself doing a lot of business, make it important to have some time for drafting, right? right? I think keeping a balance of the thing you love, you know, mixed with the other is very, very important. If you really love drafting, get someone else to run the business, right? Or find that other person in the firm who likes that more. There's some great examples of people who spend 21 hours a day and they've just found someone else who runs it. They still own the whole thing in a lot of cases. and They're in there every day and they're doing the thing that they love. And so I think, you know, just really how do you, and this was always a fresh books, it's like spend less time doing the things you don't like and more time doing the thing you love. So right. we help you save time with basically billing your clients and running your books so you can spend more time being an architect and being that in whatever way you like to do. I would just say, just try to be deliberative about what kind of architect you are, where you're biasing in your career, and then making sure you know you don't lose sight of the things that keep your inspiration sort of really topped up. The book that you're referencing is The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber, for anybody who doesn't know. 
the three are the manager, the entrepreneur, and the technician, right? Are the three that they should be looking at in terms of understanding which one you are and then find someone who can help you fill those other two roles. So you can focus on the thing that you're really good at and other people can be doing the other things. I think architects often struggle with that because they want to do all, all of it, right? They want to have full control of everything. So that's very good advice. And I know we're trying to wind down, but I, I would encourage everyone to think of themselves as having all three of those roles within. And it's like a percentage point. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, yeah, you have some of that. You can do it all, but is that the best thing? And you know, will you be in a better place and or your firm or whatever it is if you could just move it one more step along and have somebody else start to pick up some of those pieces? I think all of us have things we sort of hate doing. And one of the little nuggets I learned along the way is there's people who love doing the things you hate to do. So think about the things you hate, maybe that's probably a clue yeah. for the next hire. <laughs> Very good. His name is Mike McDermott. The company is FreshBooks. You can learn more about FreshBooks at freshbooks.com. You've heard me say that many times in the past. Yeah, I support FreshBooks. I use FreshBooks. And so this is not obviously a commercial, but it's a company and a brand which I now that I understand the background and understand the co-founder a little bit more, I'm even bigger fan of, of FreshBooks. So, Mike, thank you very much for coming by here for a little while and, and sharing your story and sharing a little bit of the story of FreshBooks and how it was created. And I thank you for creating it and for helping small firms around the world build better businesses so they can have better lives. And so thanks for that. And, and thanks for coming by here and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Delight to be here, Mark, and thank you for helping with that inspiration tank on all those entrepreneurs and architects out there. Thanks very much. You're welcome. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a link with a friend. That is the best way to help us grow. And that's how we have grown to serve thousands of architects just like you. Share a rating, write a review, but most important, share a link to this episode that you just listened to go send it off to a friend. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode. Links to the sponsors and all the resources that we discussed today in today's episode. They're all found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Entree Architect podcast select episodes are available for continuing education credit. Go learn more at gablemedia.com slash members. And if you are a small firm architect, listen up architects, join us today at Entree Architect Network, the worldwide organization for small firm entrepreneur architects. That's you with monthly business training, business resources, special session webinars, mastermind groups, and a thriving community of small firm architects. Your peers are there. Hundreds of them are there already. We will provide you with the support and the encouragement that you need to succeed. Hey, and this is super exciting. This is new coming in 2024. Entree Architect Coaches. Yes, finally, after all these years, business coaching for small firm architects. It's coming to Entree Architect Network in early 2024. Join us. Try Entree Architect Network for free for 30 days. It's free for 30 days. Visit network.entrearchitect.com to learn more. That's network.entrearchitect.com to learn more. Try it. Come join us. Try it for 30 days. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark R. LePage. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.